Well, sheesh. All right. My name is <laughs> my name is Stephen. I don't necessarily know how to to start this message. I have been a part of uh, getting to see Salt Church started about four and a half years ago, and so um, let me just let you in. I, I wrote this down as I walked into a room on Thursday night, uh, knowing that it would be my last time with a collegiate ministry there and thinking about my last time in here. And so I'll, let me just write you something. I didn't share this in the first message, uh, in the first service, but I don't know. Second service, welcome, bonus, bonus material. Here, here's just how I'm walking into this room, how I'm feeling. Today is both new and familiar. Today I get to worship King Jesus in a room that didn't exist four and a half years ago. I'm surrounded by hundreds of new stories that bear the fingerprint of God's grace, stories that I pray that will lead to thousands and thousands of more stories once I'm gone. Familiar feelings that are not new. I know me and I know myself very well, and I don't even deserve to open the door to this type of room. And yet I get to sit in the front row, grateful, humbled, overwhelmed. Another feeling I feel, a tight squeeze of my wife's hand. I know this hand very well. Why did I start the message like this? <laughs> it's a rookie mistake. I know this hand very well. It's the same hand that worshiped with me through tears as we said goodbye to Clearwater, Iowa, and now Gainesville. Different cities, different rooms, different scars, different laughs, failures, and victories, different songs I've never heard with different lyrics sung, and yet it's the song my, my heart knows very well. One hand clinging on to the hand that walked with me through all these years, rookie mistake, uh, through all these different rooms, and the other hand raised to the one who created them, holding on, so familiar, all while being held ourselves, led, carried, loved. Here's to the rooms that come next for all of us, both new and familiar. Good morning. Uh, for the past four and a half years, I've been able to just serve on the staff here at Salt Church with uh, Salt Company and serve in Gainesville. And it has become my home, but more than that, this church has become my family. And I am thankful to you. And I have seen it grow, and I've been able to walk through different areas and seasons of life with each of you, both good and hard and bad and amazing and wonderful and incredible. And I'm not sure how to express all of this in one message. So here are just four and a half things really quick at the beginning of my message. This is intro uh, before we jump into our text. Just four and a half things I love about Gainesville. I've been here four and a half years, so four and a half things that I love about Salt Church specifically. I shared places that I love in Gainesville on Thursday. Here's four and a half things I love about Salt Church. One, I love the heart of this church. I love that it loves the next generation. It has shaped me and taught me and formed me to truly believe in the, the people that we are trying to reach here in Gainesville. That the church will live and die based on how the next generation follows Jesus. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And I see that. And I have seen the type of leaders that, the next gen that this is the next generation. And I believe wholeheartedly in what God is doing through this generation. I love that about this church. I also love the leadership of this church. They lead by serving. They don't pick up, you know, uh, stages and platforms. They pick up towels and they serve. Very At the very top of the people, Paul Sabino and Jordan Prohoda and our team of elders, they serve very well. And I've seen that firsthand. Sleepless nights, crying, serving, whatever. They are here day in, day out serving this church. And I have seen that leadership. And I pray to God 
that one day I can be a servant like they are. Number three, this church takes Jesus very seriously and doesn't take themselves seriously at all. Like we know who Jesus or what the main point of all of this is, and it's not us. Salt Church is not very impressive. The only thing impressive about Salt Church, well, except for that choir, Jesus Louise. But other than the choir, Jesus is the only thing that is impressive about our church. And that is the way it should be. And we don't take ourselves very seriously at all. For I've seen how dependent the people of God are on God himself to show up. I've been in the prayer rooms begging that God, begging on behalf of this church that God would show up to lead this church and to do incredible things. And I've seen that. The half. All right, so those are four things. Here's the half thing. Uh, and this is kind of a half because it's more just selfish than it is about your church, our, our church. Well, now your church. The half thing is this, that you guys have loved my family. I love that you guys have loved my family. Uh, from me and my wife to bef- from before Amos was born, when we were struggling with infertility, to see Amos born and now loving and caring for him. And you guys are all kind of Amos's parents. And I know he needs that. He needs like a thousand parents because he's crazy. <laughs> so thank you for, for loving us and parenting Amos. Uh, here's the question that I'll ask to begin our time as we jump into this text. That was all an intro. So uh, I want to ask you this. What, what would you do? Like when you have seen the most beautiful thing in the world, how would you respond? How would you respond? What would I do if I saw the most beautiful thing in the world? This was the question a fourth grader was asking when they were filling out their assignment in social studies. Their project uh, for school that week was to write a letter to some type of government service and to become pen pals with them and learn information specifically about their branch that they served in. And she chose the National Park Service. And so they, she wrote out a letter. This is what they did. It was the 60s, okay? So, like, you actually wrote out a letter. Some of you guys don't even know what a letter is. Pen, paper. You write something on it. You send it in the mail. Someone takes it. It's magic. It's almost, it's kind of like email, but actual mail. She wrote a letter to the national parks. And to her surprise, they wrote back to her. And they gave her all this different information about the national parks and what they did. And, and they sent her these packets of information on each national park. And she would take these and look at the pictures and look at all the information and something in her heart just like grew. And she just was so fascinated at like the beauty of these national parks. And one specific one stuck out to her, the Grand Canyon. And she would with scotch tape, put this on the room, in her room on the wall where she would look at it every day. And she asked this question, what would I do if I got to see this in person? How would I respond? If I saw that, that must be the most beautiful thing in all of the world. How would I respond if I was actually able to see that? The most beautiful thing that's ever existed. Never knowing if she would be able to see it face to face, but marveled at the possibility. What would I do if I saw the most beautiful thing? The most beautiful thing. Over the past couple weeks, our church has been walking through the book of Ephesians. It's a letter from a guy named Paul to the church of Ephesus. It's six, six chapters split in right down the middle into two parts. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the first part, chapters one through three. And all that Paul is writing in the first three chapters is all about what God has done. To Paul, he is witnessing the most beautiful thing he has ever seen. His eyes have beheld the most beautiful thing that he has ever seen. 
and it's rich, and it's Paul who is this, this rabbi teacher, uh, a Jew, a teacher, and now he has come to know Jesus, and because he has come to know the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he's seen the story that God has been writing from the beginning of the garden, now in the person of Jesus Christ, he is writing about the most beautiful thing he's ever done, and you've read it, and it's all about nothing that we've done, but all about what God has done. If you notice, for the past couple of weeks, if you went back and listened to the message, or if you go back and read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, it's all about what God has done. In Christ, this is what God has done. In him, he's done this. He has taken the entire cosmos that was broken because of sin, and out of a great act of mercy and love, this God has stepped into the chaos of the cosmos and brought it all into order and new life through Jesus. All of history has been leading to this moment and God has made this known, this mystery of how is this brokenness gonna be solved? How are we gonna get back to where we were created, which is relationship with God? It is in the person of Jesus Christ and he is just blown away at this reality. And he's writing to this church, the mystery that was hidden for ages has now been revealed to us in Christ. He's uniting all things to himself, Jew, Gentile, Greek, slave, free, all of this, men, women, everyone is united in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the key to everything. He is beholding the most beautiful thing, and he's recounting that, all that God has done. He's looking at the Grand Canyon of God's grace and goodness. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, he responds to the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. And he writes a prayer and a poem, which is exactly how he opens up the book of Ephesians. A poem and a prayer. And this is what he writes in chapter 3, verse 14. After he has beheld this beautiful act of God to redeem all things to himself, he writes this thing, this prayer. He says this, for this reason, chapters 1 through 3, for this reason, I kneel. Before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depths of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And I'll say this really quickly. This prayer right here, it is deep. It's got incredible theological insight. It is rich, and you need to go home, and you need to just mine it out. Like, you need to just, like, delight in it, read it over and over and over again. But more than just read it, here's what you need to do this week. You need to go home, and you need to experience this. Like, you need to go home and pray this for yourself. This prayer that Paul is praying for the church, go home and pray all of these truths about yourself. And then second, pray it for others. This is like, has changed the way I pray now. Like I used to just like, man, pray these like other things. Now I'm like praying these things for my family and for others that I know. So go pray this for yourself and pray this for others. That's your homework. For this morning, we're gonna try to like just draw out a couple things that are true about this and what it's leading us to do and what Paul is responding in this way. But it's powerful, and I think it's powerful for a couple reasons. First, this, how and who he's praying to, and then number two, what he's praying. 
So the two powerful things about, I think, this prayer is how and who he's praying to and then what exactly he's praying for the church. Number one, how he is praying and who he's praying to. Read this verse again at the very beginning. For this reason, I kneel. Okay, for this reason, we've already said this. He's looking at chat, all, the, all that's gone before him. All of those chapters of one through three, all that God has done throughout all of history to bring things together in Christ, to make all things new in Christ. What does he do? He finds himself in this cosmic story and he finds himself in this posture, kneeling. He is on his knees, bowing. Who do you bow to? Why do you bow? You bow when you know that there is something much greater than you going on. You bow when there is a presence that is so much greater than you are, more holy than you are, you bow in surrender, you bow in worship, and that's what he does. He falls to his knees in surrender and adoration, but who is he bowing to? Okay, he's bowing to someone. He's bowing to the Father. It says, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul is kneeling before the heavenly Father, who in Christ has extended this heavenly family and rule and reign into the earth and through his great grace has brought dead people back to life in Christ. What an incredible thought this morning. You are in the family of God if you are in Christ. We are together. Look around really quick. Take a look to your left. Take a look to your right. This is your family if you are in Christ. God has made all things new. His heavenly family that has been reigning, God, the Father, Son, is now extended, and you are a part of this family through Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. You now have a relationship with God through Christ. Imagine if you lived your life like Paul lived his life in prayer. Like imagine if you practiced this on your knees to your father. Imagine what would happen to me as I like reiterate to my mind and my heart, my soul, my body, like who exactly is king over my life and who I'm looking to for strength. Imagine if I woke up every day before I jumped on Snapchat, before I jumped on Instagram, before I looked at the news, before I had a conversation with my wife, before Amos started throwing his oatmeal at my face. Every single morning. Every single morning. Imagine if I began my day like this, on my knees, bowing in surrender, not just to a king, but to my heavenly father. Imagine the impact that would have on your relationships, your marriage, your friendships. Imagine how you would just walk around every day if you started out one minute every single day on your knees physically, bowing to your heavenly father, admitting that you are not in control and you don't have the power to walk throughout the day if it's not from him. People say that you know what you value by what you spend your time and money on. So how do you spend your time and money? Pull out your bank statement. Like, how did you spend out this past week? You, like if you're a college student, it's like, man, why are you going to Wawa at four in the morning? <laughs> like, like go to sleep. You don't need, this is you, bro. I know it's you. That's why I said it. Not only if you saw like your bank account, how you spent your time, do you know what you value? I wonder if another way to see what we value is who and what we pray to. Like what do we pray about? What is the subject matter of our prayers? 
Like when you pray for yourself and you pray for other people, what do you pray? God, I just pray that this person would just stay healthy. I remember when we were like new parents, we would pray over Amos and it was the same prayer every time. Please God, would he sleep through the night? You spoke the heavens into being, please speak him to sleep. And I think it's interesting, like, man, oftentimes we are so focused on our circumstance and, con like, our context and the trials we face. And you got to know, Paul is in relationship and praying to real people going through real issues. It's a church at Ephesus. They've got real problems. And look at what Paul's praying for them. It's not about their circumstance. It's not about their health. It's not about their financial situation. It's not even the relationships that they're in. Paul is praying for something, and I think it actually reveals what he values most, and I think it actually get, alludes to us what maybe we should value in our prayers. That maybe it's not the challenges we face, the sickness, the deaths, the persecution that we might face, but we would pray that in our inner being, we would be very changed, because that's what Paul prays for. We're going to see two big things that he's praying for. He's praying for their strength, and he's praying for knowledge. So we're going to look at these two things. What is Paul praying for in these passages? He is praying for strength, and he is praying for knowledge. Let's read this again. I'm going to soak this into your mind and see what he's praying for strength and knowledge for. I pray, Paul says, that he may grant you, to give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be, here's our word, strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend, that's our word, know, with all the saints, what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you might be filled with the fullness of God. The first thing that he prays for these people for is strength, to be strengthened with power in their inner being through his spirit, and that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. This is what he's praying for them, that God would give them strength, which shows us something. Lack, they are, in of themselves, lacking strength. Like, we are created not as completely independent beings. We are created to be actually dependent in the same way right now. You need air. In the same way that you need food and water to survive, God has created you in such a way to be dependent on him. And Paul knows this. For you to live out your walk as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you need strength. And where does this strength come from? It's not yourself. He says, according to what? According to your might and power? No, it's according to his, what? Riches, according to his glory. The, according to the riches of his glory. This is where you need to find strength. This is crazy to me because Paul is more focused on who you're becoming than what you do and what you go through. He wants you to be changed and shaped from the very inside out, and he knows that is the most important thing about you. Isn't what you're walking through right now? It's the person that is walking through the things that you're going through. And he is praying that you would find strength from God to actually walk through this. So that as we pray, maybe we pray not to get out of the situation. Maybe we pray for the strength to stand in the situation. It's interesting. He also prays this for strength. Pray for strength that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul wants most for Christ to dwell in the very thing that 
operates your whole life. He wants Christ to live in your heart. Now, you might have grown up in the church. You might have heard this phrase. You need to like accept Jesus into your heart. You need to trust Jesus to come and once you accept him, he'll come and live in your heart forever. And this is actually like the only place in the Bible where you would even get this language. This is the one place where he talks about Christ living in your heart. And it might not be what you think it means. Because you might ask this question too. Aren't these people already Christians? Like, why is Paul praying that Jesus would come and live in their heart? Why is he praying that Jesus would come and dwell in their heart? And why do they need strength for it? Like, didn't this already happen? Didn't they already be like, oh, they said the prayer and Jesus lives in their heart now? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. And I think there's a way to illustrate this. And it's the difference between a home and a hotel. Like, think about this. When you go to a hotel, here's what you don't do. You've got two nights at a hotel and somewhere nice, okay? You're in Cabo or something. Never been to Cabo. Maybe it's nice. I don't know. Imagine you're two nights in a hotel. Here's what you don't do. You don't get there the first night and you're, you and your wife look around the room and go, you know what we should do? I've got a plan. For the next two days, we should, we should repaint the walls of this hotel. You don't stay in an Airbnb and be like, you know what we should do? So there's wall right here. If we just like busted out this wall, I think an open concept would really be nice in this Airbnb that we're staying at. It could probably improve the home value if we just knocked. So let's just spend the next 48 hours with a sledgehammer. Not, no, you don't do that. That would be dumb. Why? Because there's a difference in the type of dwelling that you're doing. There is lodging and then there is residence. When I bought my house and it had a ton of ugly paint and a bunch of walls that were erected that I didn't want there, you know what I did? I knocked them down. I repainted it. Why? because I am residing there permanently. I'm not lodging, I'm gonna be here for a while. Let me knock down some walls. Here is what Paul is and isn't praying for the church. He is not praying that Jesus would come and lodge in your heart. And I'm afraid sometimes we think this is what it means to be a Christian. I think sometimes we think like following Jesus is like going to a hotel for one day. We just call it Sunday morning church. Jesus, I'm gonna come visit and I pray that I'm refreshed and renewed and comforted. Help me, Jesus, with my struggle. And then we check out of church and we go on with our life. We think Jesus just wants to lodge and hang out for a little bit. That is not what Paul is praying. Paul is praying that Christ would dwell. The word dwell there means residence. That he would plant a flag and say, this is my home. This is the difference between a home and a hotel. Jesus wants to move into your house, and guess what? He wants to take ownership of it. And there are walls in your heart and in your life, and there is paint that is pretty ugly and gross, and a part of your old owner that he wants to repaint and renew. He wants to renovate that part of your life and in your heart. And he is the owner of it, and he wants to do it because he loves you so much. He is praying that Christ would dwell. And let me just encourage you guys in this, this room today. You have maybe walked with Jesus for just a moment or for, with a lifetime right now. And there is more of your heart that Jesus wants to take ownership over. There is more in your life that Jesus wants to be like, that's mine. And because I love you and I am your Lord, man, I want to renovate this to make it look like me. I want your home to look like my heart. I want your heart to look like where I live. 
And that's what Paul's doing. He's praying that they would make room for Jesus, not to visit and soothe, but to be surrendered fully. And how does this come? How does Christ come to dwell in your heart, to take over your life, to give you new life? How can Jesus like literally change all of your life to give you a purpose and a hope and joy? All of these things that Jesus can bring into your life, how do those happen? That Christ would dwell in your heart through, what's the word he uses? Faith. That Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. This is the gospel. Here's the good news. This is all we have to offer to you today, okay? Welcome, we've got one thing on the menu. It's called good news. And this is it, that Christ could come and give you new life through this, faith. Not through working really hard to try to like make your life look neat and pretty on the outside. When it's dying and corroding on the inside. No, through faith, and this is what faith looks like. It looks like looking to Jesus Christ as the only hope for me to experience life. It is his righteousness that he lived in full obedience to the Father, a perfect life. It was his death that through his sacrifice of a perfect life could atone for the sins of the world. And it is his resurrection when he came to life again, when God breathed life into him, that defeated death and the power of sin and hell in your life. And this is obtained, this can be had by you, but only through one way, and it's not by trying hard. It's through faith. Just looking at him and say, Jesus, I want your life to count for mine. And until you've done that, you have no life. Because Jesus is the only way that we could find life. That's the good news. It's free to all of us through faith. Paul is praying for strength to know that. Number two, he's praying for knowledge. He's praying for knowledge. This is what he says. I pray that you, second thing he's praying for, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the width, the height, and the depths of God's love, to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you might be able to be filled with all the fullness of God. This is his prayer. And this is a radical prayer, and I think you should pray this for yourself. You should pray this for others. This is my prayer for you, that you might comprehend to know God's love that he's going to later say is unknowable. It's insane. I want you to just try to know the depth and height of God's love in Christ. And this is crazy if you think about this. He's praying. Think about this. Paul is, is literally praying that you would know the heights of God's love and the width and the length of God's love. And I pray that you would know the depths of his love for you. I'm praying that you would just know this. And where can you know this? It is in the cross of Jesus Christ that stands once and for all, for all eternity, for all of history, declaring how God views you. Think about this. You never have to ask the question again, how does God feel about me? Romans 5, 8 tells us this, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows us, love, uh, shows us his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I can't tell you 
the answer to every question you will ever ask in your life. But I can tell you the answer to this question. How does God feel about you? He sent his own son to die for you so that you might have life. And as me and my wife talk and walk with some of our closest friends, whose mom is dying from a brain tumor of cancer, and they're asking questions like, I don't know what's going on. Why do we face this suffering? And I ask the same thing. Why, God, is there suffering in the world? And we have answers for this. But here's what I know. Here's what I know above all else. And this is what keeps me going every single day. I don't know. I don't have all the questions, but I do know this. I know how God feels about you. I know this. God displayed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if that's how God feels about me, I can walk through every question and every circumstance for the rest of my life. Knowing this, how God feels about me. But you cannot know this on your own, which is crazy. Paul actually adds this in this verse here. He says, you may be able to comprehend with all of the saints, which is interesting here, which means this, you today cannot know all of God's love on your own. Like you can't right now leave and go home with just like you and like, Walk home and like you and God be like, all right, God, like this is just me and you. We're going to do this lone ranger. Here we go. It says with all of the saints. So go ahead again and look to your left and right. Left and right. Okay. This is what Paul is saying. He's praying that you might be able to comprehend God's love with all of the saints, those who are in Christ, the family of God, which means this. When you look at someone's story to your left and to your right, what you are seeing is a unique, individual, hand-curated expression of his grace and mercy. Like you know God by knowing the person next to you. In the same way that the church, when they looked at the apostle Paul, who used to kill Christians, think about this. They're in church worshiping and taking communion next to a guy who might have killed their family member. Not metaphorically, literally. And now God, out of great mercy and grace, has grafted him into the family of God. This isn't just like, oh, I forgive you for doing wrong to me. This is we are now family, and guess what I'm seeing? I'm seeing in you a picture of God's grace that I've never seen before. Which means this, you need each other and we need each other to show us what it looks like to know God's love on a personal and individual level. We need community. We need a church family to continually be a picture of the gospel to us. And there are people that are not in this room. Fun fact. Which means this, there is more of God for you to know because there is grace and mercy to be revealed in the stories that are out there. So if you walked into this room, like, bored with God, let me just tell you, that's dumb. Like, if you think you know all of God at this point, I do this sometimes. I walk into church, and I think, like, oh, man, I, I know what's going on. I know the verses, blah, 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 blah. No, that's so stupid. There is more of God to be known. There is more of God to be revealed because his mercy and love are never ceasing, never ending. He is unknowable. His insearchable riches of his grace are just waiting for us in the very stories of the people we're next to. Okay, he is praying for knowledge. He's praying for strength. And listen, here's my encouragement for you this morning. As the church family, make room 
for what God is doing in your life and what he could do through your life. Notice that Paul is praying after he has seen this incredible work of grace, and he's not doing this. Great job. Let's call it a day. Let's get to heaven. Grab lunch on the way out. He's praying that you make room in your heart and in your life and in your schedule for more of the gospel, more of God's grace, to make room for more stories, more people, to know him deeper, to love him more. And here's the truth. If you pray this prayer today, God, would you show me more of your love? I want to know more of you deeper. Lord, strengthen me in my inner being changed from the inside out according to your grace and mercy. Here's what will happen. If you make room for God, he will fill it. Think about this. He is infinite. And so every amount of room that you make in God for your life, he can fill it with his presence. More power in your life. More knowledge, more grace, more peace. More love. That can be filled in your life if you were to make the space for God. And here's how I know this. And this is the last verse that I will ever read. Well, maybe not. Maybe I'll come back. But this is the last verse I'll read uh, on staff here. I mean, this is how he ends. Looking at the Grand Canyon of God's grace. Thinking about the immeasurable riches of Jesus' kindness. This is what he writes. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask according to the power that is in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him. So he's making this prayer. Now he's finishing it. To him who is able to do above and beyond all that we could think or imagine. This word in Greek is really confusing. I don't know how to pronounce it, but here's what it is. It's basically this. God can do much, much more than you could ever think more, ever more, possible more. Like it's something like that, okay? This is what Paul is trying to communicate. It's, a, it's called a, a super superlative. It's, it's above and beyond anything that you could think above and beyond whatever you could think. And God can do that. And the God who can do that, to him be glory in the church in Jesus Christ forever to all generations. Amen. The fourth grader in the beginning of my story who was writing a project to the national parks, that fourth grader was my mom. She spent her childhood longing to see the Grand Canyon, having it painted or having it taped on to her wall as a poster that she would see almost every day. Asking the question, what would I do if I ever got to see the most beautiful thing? And she eventually married my dad, who was a pastor, and uh, he was really poor. I don't know. Like, they just, like, didn't go on trips, and it was really funny. They bought a cat to keep the rats out of their house. Yeah, it's a weird story. Uh, it's not a part of the story. They got married. My dad started saving up money. And when I, I don't remember how old I was, we finally went out to the Grand Canyon. It was the big trip out west. It was the first trip my family's ever done like this. And we got to go out to the Grand Canyon. I remember pulling into the parking lot, and my mom just, like, couldn't wait, and she just, like, bolted. Like, just left us in the car. It's like, great. Come on, Mom. We kind of follow her out, and 
she retells the story because I don't really remember it. And we're just in the gift shop and we're just playing with all the trinkets and like, you know, like you spend all this money for your kids to like go like on this great trip and they're like, look at the gift shop. Like, look at this snow globe. You're like, seriously, I paid all of the way for you to like buy a $2 thing. But my mom didn't stay in the gift shop. She ran up to the person, like the person who was running the gift shop and she was like, urgently was like, I need to know, where is it? Like, what are you talking about? She's like, where, where's the Grand Canyon? And the lady was just like, it's right out these doors. Why are you yelling at me? So my mom bolts out the doors, and she ran up, and there she saw it for the first time. The thing that she's been longing to see her whole life. And she recounts it saying this, with tears in her eyes. She beheld the most beautiful thing that she's ever seen. That the God of the universe could craft out something like this so beautiful. How in the world could I be here right now? That once was just a picture on a card. Now I'm seeing it face to face, smelling the air, breathing the crispness of the morning, watching eagles soar over it. And with tears in my eyes, I could only muster up two words. Two words is all I had to offer. Thank you. One, to my dad who made this possible. But more than that, she said thank you because she had come to know the very God and creator who had made the most beautiful thing that she's ever seen. And here's what's happened after this moment of deep gratitude seeing the most beautiful thing that she's ever seen. Now they own a lot of mugs and magnets on the fridge at my house. If I took you to my house right now, I don't know if your parents are like this, like, but I could take you to my kitchen and I could show you tons, hun, I'm not kidding, hundreds of mugs and hundreds of magnets from the places they've been. And this is my inheritance, unfortunately. <laughs> A bunch of mugs and magnets that when they pass away, I will take to the thrift store. <laughs> And one day, some dude's going to be sipping on a Grand Canyon mug, being like, this is the best 25 cents I've ever spent in my life. <laughs> and it might not be impressive to you, all these mugs and magnets, and that's fine. But something happened that day with my mom as she beheld the most beautiful thing that she ever saw. A heart filled with gratitude. But more than that was a heart longing for more. She wanted to continue to experience and see and know the God that created all things. And it set her on this journey to just go. And now they've been to almost every national park that ever exists. They've seen some incredibly beautiful things, more than she could ever dream that she would have been able to. And here's what I'm telling you today. Make room for more. Make room in the cupboards. Fill a life full of magnets and mugs, not of trinkets and experiences, but of experiencing the one true God and a life filled with following him and knowing him. And like I pray that you have, just like my mom just saw a glimpse of the goodness that led on a life of gratitude and wanting for more, I pray that you get a glimpse of the goodness and richness of Jesus Christ. And it fuels you for a lifetime of surrender. 
to whatever and wherever King Jesus leads you, to experience more of him, that you experience more stories that God does through you, because I believe more is possible in and through you. It's Amos' favorite word right now. More. More. He has breakfast. He's like, more. Ice cream. More. Like nobody. He's like, more. I don't care. Just give me more. I pray that this is our favorite word. I pray that this is Salt Church's favorite word. God, more. We want to experience more of you. More of your grace more of your mercy, more of your power. I want to experience more stories to tell. There are people that are, not, that are not in this room that one day could be in this room because of your impact. More. What do you do when you see the most beautiful thing in the world? Well, I want to tell you this. In the same way that my mom mustered out two words, thank you, I want to express these two words as I'm looking at the most beautiful thing in the world, which is this church. Thank you. As I look back on journals four and a half years ago of goals and dreams for this church, for our ministry, and as I mark them off one by one, because God saw them through, here's what I'm asking. I'm saying this, just this simple phrase, God, thank you. And I'm saying, God, please, more. I want to end by just praying for you guys, just like Paul would pray for the church. I'm not Paul, but... I love this church and want to pray for you guys. Father, I bow my knees to you right now. Our Lord and Savior Jesus, I pray that this church and myself would get a glimpse of your glory. I pray that we would see Christ revealed by the very presence of this room. I pray that we, whether we have found ourselves empty or full today, know that there is more fullness of God ready to be poured into us in this very moment. I pray that we together would know and love the Savior that knew and loved us, the worst sinner we know, us. I pray that you know that you'll never tire out of love and mercy for us. I pray that every person in this room makes room for God to do more than they could ever think or imagine. And I pray that this room grows to make room for God. I pray that, that we make room not just in this room by busting out walls, but also in our heart and minds and schedules for you to do more. God, I pray that all that you have done all of the gospel, all of you, Jesus, is experienced by all of us for all of who we are, for all of our lives, until we all see you face to face for all of eternity. You can do it, so we make room to you. Oh God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.